And so as we look at our passage this morning in Acts 12, we are reading the close of the first half of Acts. And that first half is chapters 1 through chapters 12. And they all center around the conversion of the Jews, largely in Jerusalem. And the main you know, protagonist, as we read these chapters, they're all centered around Peter. And Peter, the Apostle Peter, he is the big dog. He is the leader on earth of the early church in this first, these first 12 chapters. And he's really just the most, uh, the most active, the most pro- proclaiming preacher. Uh, he's the biggest guy in the church on earth at this time. Then, as we get to the close of chapter 12, going through to the end, uh, the back half of the book, that shifts from a focus on the, uh, the conversion of Jews to a conversion of Gentiles. And that largely focuses, switches from Peter, then switches to the ministry of Paul. And so, there's a really big reason why the Jewish conversion changes the focus to the Gentile conversion. And that is shown here in chapter 12. We get a bit of foreshadowing for this big reason uh, in the conversion of Paul in chapter 9, but the shift of focus from Jews to Gentiles truly begins in chapter 9 and then chapter 10. And that begins in chapter 10 with Peter's vision. So Peter gets a vision of many formerly unclean foods coming down out of the heavens above him, and he sees on this large tart all of these foods that they have not been allowed to eat. And he rejects three times, no, Lord, I will not eat. This is unclean. But he hears from a voice, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And immediately following this vision, uh, he is called to go minister to, uh, to a centurion, Cornelius the centurion, who is a Gentile. And after that, Cornelius is brought to the Lord. He's brought to saving faith. And uh, shortly after this time, the Jews heard of Peter breaking bread with his Gentile, which was against Jewish custom. And they come to him wondering, Peter, why have you done this? You broke custom. This is against our Mosaic law. And so Peter shares his new revelation from God. And the Jews, uh, the Jewish believers, in verse 18 of chapter 10, they explain exactly why there are two halves of Acts. And that is in verse 18 of chapter 10. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And every person in this room should say amen by the fact that that is truth from the gospel. And so we see that God, at this time, as we're going through this transition from Jewish focus to Gentile focus, God is pushing the early church to not just reach out to the Jews and not just outreach to the Jews, but to preach the gospel to Gentiles as well. And this is the reason for the two halves of Acts, God's push of the church to go to the ends of the earth. And so now, before we actually hop into our passage in Acts 12, we need to look at a little bit of context immediately following in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, the last few verses. Because the first words of, of Acts chapter 12 are now about that time. And that implies that there's a little context we need to fully understand what we're going to be talking about in Acts 12. So going back to verse 27 of chapter 11. Uh, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, 
predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And as any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the service of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So, when this passage says the entire Roman world, that is realistically the entire known world. Yes, there are other continents that they are not aware of at this time, but everywhere that these people knew about was going to go under a massive famine. And that is the context that we need to go into here. Because there's this massive famine covering all the known world. Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church in Antioch on a short mission trip to provide food to the church in Jerusalem. And that is where our story picks up. Because not only is this a difficult time for everyone throughout the world through this famine, this becomes an especially difficult time for the church here. And so that is where we will jump to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to harm them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. So everyone in the entire world is in the midst of a brutal famine. And now, for the, ch- for th- for the first time, really since Stephen had been martyred, there was a short time of persecution against the church, as we saw. Saul was sent out to chase down Christians. But since his conversion, there's really been a lull in physical persecution against the church. But now, as we jump into, verse, in, into chapter 12, the believers, for the first time in, in years, are now being physically attacked and persecuted and assaulted for the gospel. And so, many are thrown in jail, and a disciple, apostle, a leader in the church, and James, is put to death by the sword. All for the heinous crime of sharing the gospel. And this brings us to our first point, which is in the title is Man's Schemes, but for our notes is Man's Fight Against God. And this fight here in our narrative this morning is specifically Herod's fight against God. This is King Herod Agrippa I, because there are a number of Herods throughout the New Testament. But this specific Herod, he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who put children to death in an attempt to try to kill Jesus Christ uh, back in Matthew 2. Uh, and then this Herod's, his uncle is Herod Antipas. And Herod, Herod Antipas is the one who killed and beheaded John the Baptist. So uh, this Herod has a wonderful family tradition of persecuting the church and persecuting, against, fighting against God at every turn. And so right now, Herod Agrippa I, our Herod this morning, he is creating and perfecting his own way to persecute the Christians of this day. And Herod's job, he served as the king of Judea. So his job was to be the intercessor between Rome and the Jews here under his control. And so as long as the Jews were happy, Rome would keep him in power because that made it easier for them to rule from afar. So for, for Herod... Happy Jews, happy life. That was his whole motto for his job. And so as we jump into verse 3, we know exactly what his mentality is as we go throughout the rest of this passage. And when he, meaning Herod, saw that killing James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod, seeing that killing James went really well for him politically, he's probably thinking to himself, sweet, 
I killed one guy, and all the Jews in town loved it. They are absolutely in love with me right now. They think that is the greatest thing I've ever done. So uh, let's keep a good thing going. Let's find someone else. Who else can I get? And so he goes after, as I mentioned before, Peter, the biggest name in the early church at this time. And so there's really no evidence that Herod had any personal vendetta against Christians. He was Jewish, yes, but largely only by heritage and realistically only for convenience sake. He had no reason to really care about Christians except for political gain because he knew that the Jews would like it if he persecuted the church. And so he is only attacking them to earn political points with his Jewish public. And so the church is in a very tough spot. They're already in a famine. They're having ministers come to them, but now they've lost many of their believers. James was just put to death by a sword, and now a leader in the church in Peter was just imprisoned as well, and the writing's already on the wall. They already know what Herod's likely planning to do. And so from our point of view, we have to think about it like this. Imagine if we were hit by a big famine, and suddenly believers in our fellowship were being arrested off the street. And then one of our elders was put to death. And then we find out that Pastor Josh was just arrested. We have to kind of fill in the dots. This is exactly where the church is at today. This is a brutal and horrific time for them. This is a very dark hour for the early church. But now, as we jump back into our text, we do know that Peter is no stranger to jail cells at this point. Already in Acts, he's been arrested multiple times. Back in Acts 4, he was arrested alongside, uh, alongside John, and then Peter presented a masterwork defense of the faith after being, uh, after being filled with the Spirit, and, then they was, and he was released. Then again, the very next chapter in chapter 5, Peter and all the apostles were arrested, then they were miraculously saved by God, sent back into synagogues, and then that very next morning they were arrested again because they weren't supposed to be out of prison yet. But both of these times have one thing in common is that no one had yet been martyred for the sake of the gospel. Because Acts is a timely chronological recording of the early church. And both of those happen in chapters 4 and chapters 5. Well, Stephen, the first martyr, was not killed until chapter 7. So now there's a new wrinkle as Peter has been arrested because... Now James has just been killed. Stephen, killing Christians at this point was a very normal thing because the Jews had finally realized that they weren't going to go away quietly. So now as we come to Acts 12, specifically verse 4, uh, we learn exactly what Herod's plan is moving forward in this passage. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, which is Passover, uh, when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So it's the midst of Passover when Peter is arrested. So there are countless Jews from all over the world coming to celebrate one of the biggest celebrations of the Jewish faith. And Herod, this gives him a good idea. He has a great plan. If he waits until just after Passover, those Jews wouldn't have left yet. And so he's going to have countless Jews from around the world there watching and seeing what he's willing to do for the Jews. He's going to show and kill Peter on the biggest possible stage he can think of. 
And so, clearly, when they go home, they're all going to think, oh, look what Herod is willing to do to those pesky Christians. And now to make sure, absolutely sure, this goes off without a hitch, Herod brought in four squads, a squad of Roman soldiers being four. So there's a team of 16 guards brought specifically to keep watch over Peter. And we also learn that there's even more, uh, there's even more security around this because in verse 6, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains with guards in front of the door watching over the prison. So, not only are there well-rested teams of four men constantly cycling through, watching over Peter, he is chained to the floor while two guards are standing on either side of him in the cell, while two more guards stand outside the cell. Herod absolutely does not want Peter getting away. Now, this very likely is because there was a growing number of Christians in the community there in Jerusalem. And so, odds are, he was worried that maybe they'd you know, get a good group together, try to just absolutely rush the prison, save Peter, because the writing was on the wall. James had just been killed. They could figure out what was happening next. But I also like to think that Herod might have heard about uh, Peter's little uh, Houdini act, Peter and the Apostles, back in chapter 5, and he was really hoping that if I put enough guards around him, there's nothing that can get this man out of prison. So all of this... All of this falls under our first main point, man's fight against God. Imprisonment, the death of a brother and a leader in the church, and the all but assured death of another. This is a horribly dark moment for Peter, a horribly dark moment for the church, but through all of this heartache, through all of these insurmountable odds that they are currently facing, now we see how the church responds. So my childhood pastor, uh, my childhood head pastor, Fred Gums, he mentions that in the next verse, in verse 5, he has a short two-word phrase highlighted, then he has it circled in pen, and then he made a box around that in another pen color because of how important this phrase is in verse 5. And this is truly the focal point of this portion of our next point in verse 5. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. For our second point, we see exactly what the early church does in light of these seemingly insurmountable odds. They pray. And so we see a pattern for prayer. This isn't some magical blueprint that we, if we do these exact steps, we know that God will do exactly what we pray for every single time. This will make it work because we see later in this passage that that's not even the case here. But we see that this is an outline of a pattern for prayer that is modeled throughout Scripture and is a biblical pattern for prayer. And so the church is praying But how do they pray? What is this pattern for prayer as they are facing these overwhelming odds? Well, first, they pray continuously. Notice the phrasing here in verse 5. But prayer for him was being made. In the New King James, the phrase is translated, constant prayer was offered to God. The prayer was not made once and then forgotten. They didn't say it quickly in their heads, check it off their prayer list in the morning, and then go to work, continue their days like normal. No, 
they are actively, continuously praying for their brother during this brutal time of persecution. And so, as a reminder, this is lasting for a long time. Herod waited until after the Passover week, and we don't know exactly what day Peter was imprisoned, but we know that the Passover week is a week. And so this was likely days where they were continuously praying for Peter in his imprisonment. We see throughout the Bible commands to pray, examples of prayer. David wrote wonderful psalms of praise and psalms of anguished prayer to God, all throughout, especially during his trials with his son Absalom. Then we read Christ's example for us in the Lord's Prayer, or as Will Varner calls it, the Disciples' Prayer. We are constantly reminded in Scripture to pray, to pray again, and then to keep praying. And when we're finally done with all of that, to just keep praying. Constant prayer was offered to God by the church. These believers truly are praying without ceasing. They are praying continually. And secondly, they are praying fervently. But prayer for him was being made fervently. Fervently is also translated earnestly, intensely, desperately. Just to explain their dire straits a little bit more, they're in the midst of a famine Their brothers and sisters are being imprisoned. They just lost James, one of the closest disciples to Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. And now they're watching in stunned silence, unable to do anything as they're watching Peter, likely to face the same fate in just a few days. Two titans of the faith, one already with their Lord, the other sitting in a jail cell waiting to join their Lord. They are dark days, And the believers are praying with a desperation here that very few of us here, if any, can hope to understand. And so they pray fervently. They pray intensely for their brother in Christ. And thirdly, they pray together. But prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. This point is highlighted again wonderfully later on, uh, later on in chapter 12 and verse 12, where it reads, many were gathered together and were praying. These believers, again, they're not going about their lives business as usual. They are going out of their way to come together, to meet in homes, to meet together with one another, to pray together continuously, passionately, fervently for their brother in Christ. During times of trial, during times of uh, anguish for ourselves or for other believers, how often do we just shut ourselves in? We don't share it with others. We just try to muscle through it ourselves. Yes, we're praying. Yes, we're doing all these things. But how often do we just try to push through on our own strength? The believers here, they aren't sitting back and watching their brothers and sisters. They're not watching Peter struggle in the prison in silence. They are coming together, praying together, and supporting Peter the only way they can by praying for him and praying together with one another. The church here is praying continuously, they're praying fervently, and they are praying together. That is our pattern for prayer when we face trials and tribulations, when we face those who fight against God. So now, as we come to verse 6, we see our third point in action. And that third point is God's divine deliverance. Vodibacham, he lovingly refers to this as drowsy deliverance. 
which is uh, very fitting as we read this next portion. But uh, starting in verse 6, Now on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, with guards in front of the door, watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Rise up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your garment around yourself and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but was thinking he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So for a moment here, we see Peter's faith, Peter's peace, throughout this whole ordeal. Jumping back to verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone told me that I was going to die tomorrow, that they were going to kill me in the morning, even if I was in the comfiest bed in the world, I can assure you I would not sleep very well that night. Yet, an angel of the Lord appears in his jail cell on this probably cobblestone floor, not a very comfortable place to sleep with you chained to that cobblestone floor, a couple guards around you, they're not exactly going to make it easy. They're not going to provide you pillows and warm blankets. And yet, here Peter is sleeping so soundly that the angel of the Lord has to strike him on the side to wake him up, even though the cell is filled with radiating light. I don't know that I would be sleeping that soundly that morning. However, we also see that Peter is not here sitting up waiting on his deliverance. We see that he is not up praying, waiting for the angel to show up. He's not sitting there looking at his watch thinking, man, God, you're taking a long time for this. I, I prayed for an angelic rescue like three hours ago. What are you doing? Come on, I got a, I got a schedule to keep God. No. He is faithfully sleeping. He has trust that God will keep him in whatever God chooses, but he is not expecting the salvation. And we see that throughout the entire verses 6 through 10. Because the entire time he's being saved, he doesn't even realize he is being saved. He's being brought out of the prison, and the angel is having to treat him like a mom getting her kid ready for school in the morning. Okay, Peter, time to get up. Wake up, honey. Okay, put your shoes on. You got to get ready. Put your coat on. It's a little cold outside. You might miss the bus, so hurry up. Come on. Follow me. And then finally, after we get through all of these verses, we get to verse 11, and Peter finally wakes up. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now truly I know that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. It took him a little while to catch up. And so, while it's not explicitly stated in the passage, it's safe to assume that one of the most prolific preachers, one of the most active apostles in the early church, he was probably praying throughout his own imprisonment, too. And so we don't know exactly what he was praying for. We don't know exactly what the church was praying for, either. 
He could have been praying for his deliverance, yes, but he also could have been praying that the Lord would allow him to go through this impending death and die well, that he would give glory to God through his soon death. And while God has other plans, we can see that the day arrives where Peter is to be killed and God sends his angel to rescue Peter. Peter doesn't even realize that he's being rescued until it's already happened. So now you may be thinking, well, that doesn't really matter. Regardless, that's wonderful. The people prayed, Peter prayed, the church is praying, and God worked. Look at how much faith they must have had, how amazing and strong their prayers must have been. And there are many preachers today that would likely say that that is the point of this passage. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, that is not at all the point of this passage. And that is exactly what our next point is in our sermon here this morning, our part in God's plan. Now, Peter did not realize he was being saved. And that uh, trend of doubting God's sovereignty, of not realizing God's plan, even when it is right in front of your face, happening for your very eyes, that continues as we, can, as we go through and look ahead in our passage. Starting in verse 12. And when he realized this, Peter realized he had been rescued. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So as a quick side note here, Mary is an extremely common name at this point in the New Testament. It's almost as common of a name as Josh is here at Providence Bible Church. Okay? So this is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. John Mark, you may remember him, he was the young man who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey and then left, uh, and then on the second missionary journey that caused a bit of dissension between Paul and Barnabas. The, uh, John Mark is also the author of the Gospel of Mark. And so this is his mother's home. And we also know that John Mark was here at this time, so he was likely in the congregation praying for Peter at this time. So uh, Peter arrives, and then in verse 13, And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that, that Peter was standing at the gate. So this is kind of funny to read a little bit. It's kind of humorous to picture, because Peter shows up, and she is so excited to hear his voice that she runs off to tell everybody without letting him inside. And so, it's funny for us, as the outside viewers reading this, it's kind of fun. Yeah, it's great. You know, it's kind of funny. For Peter, this has to be absolutely terrifying. Because Peter was just broken out of prison, and he's still supposed to be in prison. So any guard he comes by, any, any Jewish citizen is going to recognize him and think, Hey, wasn't this guy just arrested? I didn't hear him get out of prison. And so he's probably, as soon as that angel left him, as he's, you know, going through town, he's probably sneaking, put his hood up, as, as inconspicuously as he possibly could, trying to get to Mary's home, a place where he knew he had safe harbor. But he finally gets there, finally to the, the threshold of safety, and the girl who is so excited to hear his voice runs off and doesn't even think to actually let him inside. So here he is at the threshold of safety, and he has to wait. And I'm sure he did that extremely patiently. But 
this is where our funny little moment does take a bit of a heartbreaking turn. Because when Rhoda goes to tell everyone this amazing good news of the Lord's divine providence, his divine deliverance of Peter, we see that their fervent, continuous prayer over this week, it doesn't come wrapped in a lot of faith. Verse 15, And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. They don't believe her. They say she's wrong. They say she's crazy. And then they, they just say, okay, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Well, actually, it's, it must be his angel. This is either saying that Peter had already died or it's bringing up a, a Jewish superstition where each Jewish believer had a guardian angel that could take their likeness, uh, their, own, their person's likeness of the person they were to guard as their guardian angel. But either way... Rhoda comes to them excited, proclaiming Peter is at the doorstep, and they shoo her away. They don't believe her. They just say, Rhoda, Rhoda, that's nice, honey. We get it. That's wonderful. You're excited, but quiet now. Let us, let us focus. We're praying for Peter, honey. Leave us alone. While Peter stands at the doorstep. Fortunately, as we come to verses 16 and 17, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were astounded. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he recounted to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brothers. Then he left and went to another place. This passage shows us a vital truth. And it brings up our next, our next bullet point here. Our lack of faith does not control God's plan. Peter was not saved because this was exactly what he prayed for. He did not pray exactly the right thing with the exact right amount of faith. And we see here, the church did not pray for it either. Because when they were smack dab, hit in the face with Peter is at the front door, they didn't even have enough faith to get up and check for themselves. They shooed the girl away saying, you're crazy, that can't be. And now before we judge them too harshly, we have to see they did, yes, they did all the right things, and yes, they lacked faith, but we have to understand that these same Christians, these same, the same church, probably just a few weeks, a few days prior, prayed the exact same way, prayed the exact same amount, the exact same time, prayed together, prayed continuously, prayed fervently when James was imprisoned by Herod. And as we read in verse 1, James was put to death by the sword. So we see this exact same picture in verse 1 as we see here now. And that kind of brings up a little question. It's a question that kind of worms its way in your mind, one that is a little hard to answer without a biblical understanding of what our part is in God's plan. And that is, that question is, why, God? Why? I mean, praise the Lord. You saved Peter. Thank you, Lord. That's wonderful. But why didn't you save James? Why did you let James die? And that is man's foolish understanding of how God's plan, of God's providence, how his perfect design works. 
Because it is God's plan. It is God's design. It is not ours. God clearly explains our limited understanding of his perfect design in Job 38. This is immediately after Job had questioned God's righteousness, his, his justice, and allowing horrible things to happen to Job. So Job, uh, Job is complaining and whining to God, and God responds to him, which is terrifying in and of itself. But Job 38, verses 1, beginning in verse 1, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you know understanding, who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? And this continues for two or three chapters of God explaining how limited our understanding of God's design, of God's plan. We look at our broken world, we look at our sinful lives, the, the bad things that happen to so-called good people, and we think, well, this isn't right, God. What are you doing, God? Why would you let this happen, God? But God does not work out things for the good of mankind. God does not work out things for the good of our lives here on earth. And God definitely does not work out things according to our expectations of how they should go. God does work things out for his purpose because he is sovereign and he sovereignly works out his divine purpose and plan through us. And that brings us to our final point this morning. God's will will be done. No matter what, God's will will be done. As we look here at the culmination of our passage, we see exactly what God's sovereign purpose is here in Acts 12. And we see the dangers of fighting against it and of fighting against God. Verse 18, Now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And when Herod had searched him for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. So this was common uh, practice for Roman soldiers. If, uh, if you were set to guard a person and they got away, especially if they were to be executed, you were executed in their stead. This is shown in Acts 16 uh, when the jailer is about to take his own life after God has sent an earthquake, all of the jail cells had opened, and Paul and Barnabas had been sitting, and uh, uh, Paul and Silas, I should say, they had been sitting and singing praises and hymns, and they yelled at him, no, stop we have not left because the jailer was going to take his own life as opposed to allow himself to go through the excruciating death that was looking before him if he had been, uh, if the guards had, if he had let the prisoners get away. So then, continuing the back half of verse 19, then Herod, he went from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and with one accord they came to him. And having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. So, reminder, again, famine had overtaken all of the Roman world. And these nations relied on food that, were, that was imported from Herod's country to survive. And so they won over, they buttered up Herod's servant enough to get him to come down and visit him. Now was their chance to woo the king himself and pray and hope 
that this guy would send them food so that they could put food on their tables. Verse 21, And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel and sitting on the judgment seat, began delivering an address to them. And the assembly kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. You can almost picture Herod here, his, this pompous ruler, sitting on his judgment seat, basking and enjoying the revelry of these people who are only praising him so that he'll put food on their tables. And now, instead of refusing this profane worship, as he should, instead of giving this glory to God, which is rightfully God's, Herod accepts it, he revels in it, and he loves it. And by doing that, he is not only fighting God in this passage, he is, a, he is attempting to steal what is rightfully God's. He is attempting to steal God's glory. As David writes in Psalm 24, Who is he, this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. God does not let this debauchery stand. He does not let this Uh, this profane worship stand. Verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod fought the church. And in doing so, he fought God. Herod tried to steal God's glory, and in doing so, he fought God. And after all of this fighting, after all of this war, what did Herod have to show for it? Absolutely nothing. That is the result for everyone who fights against God. While the ending of those who war with God is not always as spectacular and instantaneous as being struck dead and eaten by worms, as it is here for Herod, we do know who wins that fight every day single time. And as we read in verse 24, the culmination and focus of our passage this morning, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Herod wanted to destroy the church for political gain. God, in his divine providence and sovereign plan, used Herod's persecution of the church for God's own purpose. Just as we see back in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus And reflected here in verse 24, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. God's will will be done, no matter what. We even see in the very closing verse here, the culmination of God always providing for his church, here in verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, fulfilling their ministry taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, this passage is not showing us 
that praying the right way with all the faith we can muster, with all the fervor and continuous prayer that we can do, will get us exactly what we want. This passage is showing that even when our faith fails, even when our prayers are weak and full of doubt, God's will will be done, no matter what. God wins. He won in Herod's day, he wins today, and he wins forevermore. As we've read all through Revelation, as Josh has been teaching us over these past few months. So Herod, his uncle, his grandfather, they all did everything they could to eliminate the gospel. Peter, he trusted the Lord enough to sleep well, but he didn't even realize that he was being saved until the, until the angel was already gone. And yes, the church prayed, they prayed fervently. We've seen their pattern for prayer. But they didn't even have enough faith to go check their front door. And yet, verse 24, the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. We see throughout scripture that God's will cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped, and it can't even be slowed down. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then in Psalms, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. What is the Lord's response to this in verse 4 in chapter 2? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are here this morning and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior... You have set yourself against God, just like Herod. You are fighting God, and you are rejecting his gift of eternal salvation and forgiveness of sin, just like Herod. And you may say, well, I'm, I'm not fighting against God. I mean, I'm, I'm here in church, right? I, I'm not out actively persecuting Christians. Why does it matter? I don't, yeah, I don't believe all of this stuff, but I, I'm here. That's got to count for something. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. And then again in Matthew 7, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Today we might add, Did I not help in nursery in your name? Did I not set up and tear down church each week in your name? Did I not go to D group every week and help in Bible studies and all these things in your name? But the Lord's response on the day of judgment will still be the same. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you are sitting here this morning and you don't know where you will be, when you die. If you want to know anything, uh, want to learn more about saving faith through Jesus Christ, please, after the service, come up to me. Go to the connect table in the back where Gordon's sitting now. We would love to talk with you about this more. We would love to answer any questions you may have because this is the most important question, the most important decision you can ever make. You are either with God or you are fighting with him. There is no riding the fence. There is no in-between. Let's pray. Father, we all once fought against you. Yet you have made those who have called on your name fellow heirs with you in Christ. 
I pray you would speak to the hearts of those here today who have not come to Christ. Show them that they are fighting against you, that they are living in sin against the perfect and holy God, that they are pitting themselves against you, and it is a losing battle against a God whose will and whose purpose cannot be thwarted. Father, may this be the day when their battle against you ends. The day when they trust in Christ's death and resurrection, trust in the one who paid the ultimate cost for their sins, rising again to bring them to eternal life. Amen.